Welcome to the Empowered Podcast, where we bring you expert clinical perspectives on the latest health data and wellness trends. Each week, we'll cut through the noise and answer your unanswered health questions, helping you take control of your everyday well-being. The Empowered DX Podcast is for general educational purposes only and is not medical advice. If you have any questions about your own health, please consult a healthcare provider. Visit the Empowered DX Terms of Use webpage for the full podcast disclosure. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to our live webinar from Empowered DX. We're calling it Assessing Firefighters' Exposure to Harmful PFAS Chemicals. So thanks so much for being here tonight. And today we're going to be diving into the firefighting community being exposed to PFAS forever chemicals. So we're going we're gonna to tie that together. We're also going to look into the evidence-based links to long-term health issues and the best way to self-test for more than 40 PFAS compounds in the blood from your home, your fire department, or anywhere in the U.S. And today I'm joined with some, some guests and experts in the field. I have Erin Jerger. She's a registered dietitian, and she's actually the director of commercial ops at EmpowerDX. How's it going, Erin, if you want to say hey? Great. Fantastic. We also have Dr. Travis Wilkes. He's the medical director of EmpowerDX and family practice physician. How are you doing, Travis? Great, Austin. Thanks. Perfect. Yeah. We also have Taryn McKnight. She's the PFAS practice leader at our environmental reference lab. Hey, Taryn. Hello. Hey there. And last but not least, we have Andrew Patterson. He's the PFAS technical director at EmpowerDX's environmental reference lab. What's going on, Andrew? Hey, hey Austin. And also, I wanted to give a quick shout out. Today is about firefighters, and I wanted to thank everybody for their service. So really appreciate what you do for us as firefighters in the firefighting community. So thank you. So I wanted to hand it off to Aaron to, to dive into our first question. Absolutely. So thank you again, everyone, for joining. And I think we should just start with an overview of what are PFAS chemicals. Who wants to take that one? Okay, I'll start. Okay. So PFAS chemicals are a man-made, first of all. So these are not naturally occurring in the environment or in our bodies. Um, there are thousands of chemicals in this class, um, but there's a few that get more attention than others. So you may have heard of PFOA, PFOS, a Gen X. And what's unique about these chemicals is um, how they're formed. So they're created by forming um, and attaching fluorines to carbons. And that bond between a carbon and a fluorine, it's one of the shortest and strongest bonds in nature. So it gives us those really unique um, abilities to have a stain repellent, water repellent, oil repellent uh, properties, and most importantly, fire suppression properties. So that bond, it has no known degradation pathway. There's nothing that naturally breaks that down um, in the environment or in our bodies. So that's where they came up with this name of forever chemicals. They're known to last forever um, right now. These chemicals were first manufactured going back to uh, mostly the 1950s, and uh, they were based off of um, an eight carbon structure. So um, that's where PFOA and PFOS get their names. The O stands for octa, um, and that is considered a long chain chemical. 
And then around the early 2000s, after a landmark legal case, manufacturers transitioned to making uh, replacement chemicals for those long chains. So they focused in on shorter chain, thinking those would be safer, less toxic, less bioaccumulative, less persistent. So those were really uh, targeted at being a C6 uh, six carbons or less. And so we'll talk a little later on about kind of the implications of that in the different types of foams that we use. So next question is, so what do PFAS chemicals have to do with the firefighting community? Now you mentioned fire suppression, but give us the whole overview, please. You know, firefighters really have a unique exposure pathway. Some of the chemicals Taryn mentioned and fire suppression, this community, this crowd probably knows well, um, AFFF aqueous film forming foam. And that chemical uh, is percent level of PFAS that is then mixed with water to create a foam to put out hydrocarbon fires, put out fuel fires. And it does it does a really excellent job of that. It does what it's supposed to and it does it effectively. But it has large, large concentrations of PFAS. And so that's one exposure pathway. PFAS are also impregnated into the textiles of turnout gear. And these can be these can be quite high. And I know there is some work now to to get turnout gear that doesn't have PFAS in it. But historically, a lot of this gear has had very high levels of PFAS. And so not only perhaps the foam that you're using has PFAS, but also your gear itself is impregnated with PFAS. Those are probably the most well understood exposure pathways. Um, but there's also the component of the volatile PFAS, PFAS in air. So that's only really recently being more and more understood sort of the, the PFAS and air component. Um, but really when you put it all together, there are plenty of exposure pathways. And the thing about PFAS is that it's a cumulative effect. So with, with each exposure, some of that is bioaccumulating in your body. And while, you know, Taryn is talking about PFOA and PFOS, there are a range of chemicals and chemistries that can be both short chain or long chain. And as a result, these have either longer or shorter half-lives in one's body. So firefighters, probably more than anyone else, you know, put their life on a line on a regular basis, but then also have this exposure that's, that's unlike anything else. I also just wanted to add a, a, a clarification there. I noticed, I mean, we'll take questions at the end, but I noticed a question came up about uh, flame retardant treated clothing. And so that's different um, than what we're talking about. The, the treatment of the textiles of um, firefighters turnout gear is actually for the purpose of water repellency. So that's where the PFAS come from. It's different uh, class of chemicals that are used for um, flame or fire retardant. That, that's, that's true, Taryn. And some of that's that, that, that waterproof barrier, that waterproof membrane. Whereas the, the flame resistant clothing uh, uses a brominated based chemistry. Uh, polybrominated diphenyl ethers or PBDEs are often used for uh, fire resistance. But that's, that's a whole different discussion. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you mentioned this accumulation in the body. Dr. Wilkes, can you tell us if there are any related health issues having these uh, this accumulation of PFAS in the body? Yeah, so these uh, there, there's definitely health associations that continue to be studied. Right now, there's a number of studies going on, but it can affect all kinds of the parts of the body. It can affect cholesterol and it can affect liver function and it can um, increase risks of certain types of cancer like kidney and testicular cancer. 
there's uh, pregnancy and uh, birth defect things. It can affect how how well a vaccine works for an individual. So there there are a number of uh, of of health associations that are really important to consider. That this is not just you know trying to check a box and and uh, and know if a level is high or not. That there are very real implications for people's lives. That's great. So another question for our experts. Can you tell us a little more about the firefighting foams and their connection to PFAS exposure? Yeah, so PFAS are specifically found in class B foam. So these are the AFFF, aqueous foam forming foam, or um, al- alcohol resistant AFFFs. Um, and they're, they're designed to treat specifically those liquid hydrocarbon type fires. So the fires you might be encountering at uh, military installations, airports, refineries, um, and the like. Um, and so all of those foams contain PFAS. Um, there are efforts underway to develop fluorine-free foams or triple F. Now, there's a federal mandate, so it's legally required that the Department of Defense use these AFFF PFAS-containing foams. It's part of the military specification or MIL-SPEC. And then the FAA also has that same uh, requirement for airport firefighters. And so there's a movement to replace that, get away from that requirement and replace those with the fluorine-free foams. But unfortunately, they haven't been successful at meeting the mill spec yet. Um, So still more work to be done on that. There are a number of states that have done surveys of the local fire stations and their inventory of these types of phones. And they've even initiated in a few states a take-back program. And and I think we found that a lot of them were surprised um, by the the sheer stockpiles of this type of foam that um, those local fire stations may not have necessarily required or been necessary for them to use. And I, you know, I certainly can't speculate on the uh, purchasing decisions, you know, made by those those local fire stations. Um, but I can attest to the fact that there was no reason for them to think that um, they should avoid using them. Right? There were no warnings, um, you know, no information about health effects or restrictions um, for several decades. And then, um, you know, these foams we can kind of break into uh, two broad categories right now, the legacy foams and then the next generation foams. So I mentioned when they started uh, manufacturing these chemicals um, back in the 50s, and then they began formulating these foams in the 60s, they were based off of PFOS. So that long chain legacy based foam. Uh, And then in the 1970s, they started making foams that were based off of a different process called fluorotelomerization, but also still part of that long chain legacy category. And it wasn't until 2016 about that they started making foams with those shorter chain chemicals. So they're largely marketed at being C6 foams hoping that those would be, you know, safer basically than their long chain counterparts. 
And I think one of the significant benefits of the tests that we offer is that it doesn't just focus on those legacy PFAS constituents, which historically all the testing done to date has. And so our test captures as many PFAS as possible, which includes more of those next generation PFAS chemicals. Thanks for that, Taryn. You actually kind of helped me get into the next question, which is about testing. And if someone is concerned about occupational exposure to these chemicals, Andrew, how can they get tested? Well, that's, you know, that's, that's why we're here. Partially, uh, traditionally, PFAS has been tested in, in human blood via serum. And so this would require a blood draw from a phlebotomist. You'd have to uh, let the blood clot, spin the blood down in a centrifuge, send that serum uh, on dry ice to a laboratory. So it was, it was a pretty lengthy process. So, you know, there's a slide up right now showing our, our finger prick method. And this is, this is what we think it's pretty revolutionary. Uh, one, you don't need to visit a doctor. You can order this kit um, directly, get it to your firehouse, your, your home, wherever you want it. Um, and you can see that you can you sample yourself there. And so, so really, we're, we're making it so much easier for anybody, not just the fire community, but this really is a remote sampling approach. That kit also comes with a necessary uh, specimen bag that's then it has a prepaid shipping, prepaid overnight shipping via FedEx back to our laboratory in Northern California, um, where we have this proprietary method of extraction and uh, quantitation of the PFAS in your blood. So this took about two years to really fully develop and we've invested in instrumentation and we've invested in the, the whole process in general. And we're, we're really happy uh, with where this is going because it's, it's private. It's between you and yourself. These results are not shared with anyone else. You can access the data through Empower's website. And really, it's, it's a far more private experience than it has been. And when you get your results, um, we, we're including and we're, we're cognizant of the fact that these are whole blood results and traditionally results are delivered in serum. So we're using uh, peer-reviewed published conversion factors as part of your data. So when you get your report, you'll see your results in whole blood. Uh, that's what we actually measured, and we're up to about 47 PFAS that we're measuring. Um, and then there's conversion factors for those legacy PFAS that are available. So you really get the whole thing. And I should mention that this is um, this is an example of the report that you would get um, where your your result there, now the first set of numbers in that first column that says result, um, it, our reporting limit is how low that we could detect that particular PFAS. And then the serum equivalent is using those conversion factors. So in the example for PFOA, we measured your PFOA at, say, 1.6 nanograms per mil. Um, that would convert out to 3.2. And it's not always just a two-to-one relationship. We should point that out. Um, there are specific conversion factors for each PFAS. And we're learning about more of those conversion factors as we go on. We're undergoing a study right now where we should have conversion factors for all the PFAS in general. So really, uh, once you get that serum equivalent, then you can look at the, the NHANES CDC data uh, to compare those results. So we wanted to have this at a snapshot and we're pretty happy with, with, with how that turned out. So again, you know, kind of the, the take home points is you sample yourself, we extract it. Um, we're using the gold standard for extraction. Why, by using isotopes, we actually add um, isotopically labeled compounds to your sample to be able to determine with certainty 
the presence and concentration of, of the PFAS in your blood. So um, no expense was spared. This is, this is the top of the line test with top of the line equipment with the latest generation of instruments. So we really put a lot of effort into it because we know we had to get it right. And I would add another benefit of this type of self-collection test, especially for, I think, firefighters, is uh, when you can collect the sample. So if, you're, if you want to measure, um, let's say, immediately after an exposure event, as soon as you get back to the firehouse, um, any time of day or night that that might be, you can grab this test and, you know, draw your sample and ship it off to the lab as opposed to, you know, days or weeks later getting an appointment to see a doctor or phlebotomist or something like that. That's, that's a really good point, Taryn. And, we, you know, we are exploring research opportunities right now um, where fire, firefighters would take their baseline PFAS results. And then the unique part about this test is that you could, after an exposure incident, after you're fighting fire, you could test one hour, two hours, six hours, uh, 24 hours later uh, to, to map out what's happening uh, in one's blood. So it's totally unique. Yeah, that's fantastic. I appreciate that rundown, Andrew. So another question for our experts, is there anything being done to minimize the exposure that firefighters have to these chemicals or to measure the health effects? And I know we've touched on a little bit of that, but I'd love to go a little deeper. Um, I'll go. So uh, there's been a number of legislative efforts to um, address both a minimizing exposure and then measuring the health effects of the exposure. I can give you a few examples. Uh, there's a number of states that have passed legislation that bans, let's say, most uh, uses of AFFF, not a total ban, but really trying to limit um, that it's only used in emergency response. It's never used for training. Um, and then when it is used in emergency response, it's only for those fires where it's really necessary, those you know, certain types of liquid hydrocarbon fires. And so that's in a variety of states around the country. A few states do have outright bans um, and, and have initiated take-back programs for those stockpiles of these types of phones. Um, at a federal level, um, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a bill that passes every year because it funds our Department of Defense, um, there are a number of PFAS items in there. Um, so mostly to do with AFFF and the Department of Defense use of um, that. So they've been mandated to uh, find a fluorine-free replacement and you know phase out the use of those legacy PFAS-containing phones. Um, the I think it was NIOSH. NIOSH or National Institute of Health? No, I think it was NIOSH, um, was um, mandated to conduct research on the exposure from turnout gear and, um, you know, potential health effects from that. Taryn, besides the exposure, I know maybe I'm kind of going back to this, but I, I think it's fascinating. Um, we, are, we are supporting programs right now um, for first responders that look at PFAS and blood. And part of the, part of the reason that uh, these universities have chosen our laboratory is that we can look for more PFAS um, than anyone else. Um, this is this is through an extended PFAS PFAS compound list, and in fact, I think Taryn, you guys you guys know you know this, but maybe not even everyone knows that we're just recently expanding uh, this list. That we hope to push it um, north of 50 PFAS compounds that we're looking for in blood. Uh, that's 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 been validated. So, you know, we're we're supporting both individuals 
So no, no matter what industry they're in, uh, we're supporting townships. And then we're also supporting research, looking at some of these health effects. And we're, we're, we're ourselves aren't looking at the health effects, but we're supporting uh, the concentrations of PFAS and first responders right now. So it's, it's really cool to be part of. Definitely is. We're excited to have the product and excited to know that maybe we're going up to 50. So that's great. Aaron, I, I did have one thing that I thought was sort sure. of important to mention um, here. So, you know, I, I think that what I think about with every test that we bring to market and just with every every test in general, just as a doctor, is how how do you use this test to make somebody's life longer, better? You know, how do we how do we use a test correctly? And why, why, why do it? Why did Andrew spend so long developing this test? Why, you know, why or why do we want to know other than to know? And so what strikes me that I think about as we think about health and the connection here is that we know that firefighters die from heart disease and cancer above all other things. And so I personally had the pleasure of caring for a number of firefighters as their personal physician. And I think about that and their unique risk and the unique um, understanding that, you know, increased cancer risk, increased heart disease. And that really like sticks in my head every time I've ever seen a firefighter. And I think that as we're learning more, we're learning the effects of PFAS and its effect on cancer risk. We're, we're learning the effect on cholesterol and different cardiovascular markers. And I think that what needs to be understood is that if you understand an in, at an individual level that someone has had a high level of exposure to PFAS, then someone can work with their doctor and take a more proactive, preventative approach that may either detect something early because everything is easier when you, when you detect it early to deal with. And also there's ways to prevent things. And so if, if you have this information and say, we need to consider this, if, 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 a, if a firefighter has this in their hand, the resultant says, can you consider this factor when you're making a decision about my health? I think that is an incredibly powerful thing and I think that um, you know that that's what that's what I would love as a doctor is for someone to be able to bring something about their occupational exposure um, or their exposure in general, and then I use that in my decision making to you know to make the best decision about their health. So powerful! I'm glad that you that you brought that up, Dr. Wilkes. Um, I think we should start our Q and A. We have a lot of um, questions and chat and should we just start at the top austin start yeah. right in and pfas exposure lead to brain damage or cancer so the tightest connection has been with kidney cancer and with testicular cancer uh, you know the, there's ongoing studies looking at a number of other types of cancer it's very hard to study associations with cancer be, because of so many different factors um, in it um, but you know, if, if as a doctor, if I have someone who has a high level of PFAS and I know that, 
just the fact that there's these associations between kidney and testicular cancer, that's going to heighten my suspicion and my sort of clinical awareness of, I need to be thinking more about this person's cancer risk. And then that's going to make me really, you know, take, I think, a different approach to them, a more personalized approach. In terms of the brain, there's less good information that's been sort of uh, published on that. In general, information about the brain is really hard to study. We can't biopsy the brain. We can't uh, we, we we can't get good information in general outside of like MRI and 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 CT imaging. So that's uh, that's the challenge with anything brain related, unfortunately. Okay, thanks for that. Um, we also had a question: If you can you only get it through inhalation, or can you get exposed like through the skin? or ingested all of the above all of the above all of the above okay austin you see any more yeah there's a lot of other good questions in here absolutely you know i'll I'll take one that i saw that i thought was pretty interesting um you know i think the question was um how long after exposure occurs will these chemicals be detectable in the blood uh it's it's a really great great question and um honestly the how fast do they show up is it's quite quite rapid. Um, I should point out that uh, when Taryn was talking about chain length of some of these PFASs, the, the shorter length PFAS, uh, the, the four carbon PFAS, this would be PFBA as an example, that has a half-life in your blood of 48 to 72 hours, which means half the concentration will have decreased after 48 to 72 hours. So it's, it's a pretty rapid onset. And then depending on the chain length, is going to be determining the half-life. So something like C4 is in the matter of hours to days, and something C6 or C8 can be decades for a half-life. Thank you for that. I was I, I was just going to throw out there too, you know, how how long after exposure will these chemicals be detectable in the blood? Kind of the follow-up to that, you know, I'm I I work in a lab. I've tested my blood for PFAS many times while bringing this test up. And in fact, we tested everyone's blood that was in the lab and no one was anywhere near non-detect. We think it's something, Taryn will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's greater than 95% of the U.S. population has detectable levels of PFAS in their blood already. So it's really not a matter of, you know, do I have it or not? It's a matter of how much. And we did have a question. Is there occupational exposure level for PFAS? Is there a particular level that people might have in a certain occupation? I'm aware of um, an inhalation, an occupational uh, inhalation level for compound related to PFOA, but that's it. Um, I think the occupational, so which is regulated by OSHA for occupational hazards, I think they have um, a long ways to go in terms of addressing um, PFAS, but that's why the research is so important. So you've got FEMA has funded a number of research efforts uh, related to firefighter exposure to these chemicals. Uh, I think one of the yeah one of the research opportunities we're supporting right now is being funded by FEMA with the um, University. Well, what is it, Andrew? The University of Arizona or Arizona State University? 
I feel so bad for not getting it right, but um, it's it's a university researcher um, that is funded by FEMA, and they're looking at um, trying to generate that data that can help inform OSHA about um, you know developing those standards. And so, you know, the more data that um, firefighting personnel can obtain and share with. I would think their unions with their, um, you know, local Congress persons, uh, the more they're going to be effective at being able to advocate for legislation uh, that's going to be protective of them. Agree. We had a question about um, other sampling methods, like is there an air sampling method that exists for measuring exposure to PFAS? Yeah, so there's air methods for personnel um, exposure, so like a workplace exposure type of sample. There's indoor air, so if you wanted to test the air that you breathe in your home, um, and then just outdoor ambient kind of levels. So um, there's all a variety of different methods for testing air. But, but Taryn, we should point out that, that those are more research-based methods, and the, the Direct-to-consumer and direct-to-business methods are, are really, it's the blood method. The indoor air monitoring and the source air monitoring are, are pretty elaborate processes that wouldn't be carried out by an individual type thing. Very, very true, right. So that requires sort of scientific professionals to collect those samples and interpret the data for you and all of that. So I have a, a kind of a dual question. Part of it maybe for Dr. Travis Wilkes here. It is... Uh, do you offer guidance information along with the test results for patients to bring to their doctor? So, so Travis, when somebody does get the results online um, in our portal, and then maybe they print them off, print off the PDF or bring it on their phone, they bring it to you. Do doctors know what to do with it? And if they don't, then, then how can our, our listeners inform their, their clinicians to, to know what to do with it? So I, I think that most doctors are, are not going to know off the bat. I think it's going to require a little bit of research, but fortunately, CDC has good resources. I mean, there are, there are good resources to help a doctor better understand how to, how to deal with it. I do think that it's sort of convenient because I think that, uh, that firefighters often uh, share a small group of, um, of physicians. Um, so, you know, as, as this were to get used in a community of, of firefighters, I think that, uh, the doctors in that community would um, sort of educate themselves and, and learn more about how to use it and just sort of how to consider it. Just like I, I think that doctors are pretty comfortable with learning about how to use environmental exposure, even if they're not they're not completely well versed in it, just because um, most doctors have dealt with some situation of someone who's been exposed to asbestos or radon or other kind of environmental uh, contaminants, and uh, you know, with the with with not too much effort, they can uh, they can learn enough about sort of how they need to use that information to to make a better approach. And so, you know, the the, the one question I think that's always going to come up is, well, what's a safe amount? What what how, how much should I worry about? And if um, and I think one thing that happens in the in the firefighting community is. You know, is, is there a different safe amount? So is like, you know, is there an occupationally safe amount for a firefighter? And I, I, I sort of think about that, that, um, that firefighters uh, can be superheroes, but not, uh, they're not superhuman. And so, you know, any elevated level needs to sort of um, factor into the medical decision-making and uh, sort of that, that risk analysis about, okay, 
how how should I be approaching this person's cholesterol? How should I be approaching this person's liver function? And and um, and I think that uh, that that it's not a very big reach for doctors to develop at least a, a a sort of enough of an understanding that they can continue to learn and continue to integrate it into their practice. That makes sense, Doctor Wilkes. And I have a follow up question to that as well, kind of medical related. And and Taryn, you touched on a little bit at the beginning of our webinar, but are there any routine medical surveillance programs or things being done for fire departments now? So what is there a PFAS testing requirement in blood or anything else that, that the fire departments should know about and should be getting regular testing for? So there are specific studies being done, you know, in a few locations around the country, but you know, there isn't like a national program or, you know, statewide programs that offer regular testing to fire personnel, not at all. Wasn't that recently though, right, Taryn, about Indiana, I think there were, there was an article that came out that that was, that was proposed. Yeah. So they're seeking um, a grant from the CDC to fund and support um, testing of Indiana state firefighters. So in that regard, it would be statewide, but it is, again, part of a targeted um, research effort. And to my knowledge, wouldn't entail any kind of ongoing um, monitoring. Okay. I see a couple of questions about asking how departments can get tested, a couple of questions about pricing. So I'd be happy to address that. Um, first of all, if you are wanting to get your fire department tested, you can certainly reach out directly to me and email me. I'm happy to talk with talk through that with you. My direct email is Aaron at EmpowerDX lab.com. Austin, maybe we could put that in the chat. And as far as pricing goes, um, we retail it at $399, $399, but we have gotten approval for the next 500 tests to do um, at a lower price of $299. So, you know, we just feel like this needs to get out into the community and we wanted to offer that for a limited time. And can somebody, one of our experts, yeah, I wanted to hear about competitive pricing and why yeah. why that's so different than ours. Yeah, and that's that's actually what I wanted to to acknowledge here. The um you know the test our test is is far superior we think than anything that's out there. And I'm sure I'm a little biased, but you're actually getting um from from a finger prick instead of a blood draw. Um so there's there's some savings there. Um, you're getting 47 PFAS um, at really nice low detection limits in a 10-day turnaround time, and that's that is $400. And we are an advocate of being having that be as low as possible. We know that there's a competition out there uh, that is charging $750 for six compounds, and so so really on a on a per compound basis, it's it is it is a deal, and just. I know, I know $400 does sound like a lot, but I can't stress that this test is, is quite complicated. It's not, it's not like a water test for fluoride or um, some other general chemistry. This is about as sophisticated as it comes. And so some of that is just the fact that the, the instruments that this test goes on um, are, are over $600,000 a piece. 
And so really we, we try to make this as, as competitive as possible. So I know, I know it does sound like a lot, but, but really it's a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah. And even just the process you all have to go through to have a PFAS free lab and packaging. And I mean, just how much detail you all have put into that is um, quite impressive too. It's not easy to duplicate. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, some of the inspiration for this test did, did come from different firefighter stories. I know some firefighters that have said they've done foam angels um, because it, they were told it wasn't that bad of a thing. I've heard uh, pranks getting played where someone will put some AFFF in someone's shampoo and then they go to shampoo their hair and it's nothing but foam and it's super duper funny. So, you know, on top of, but it's not funny, the more we learn, the more we learn that's not the case. So question for Dr. Wilkes, if somebody came to you right now, one of your patients and said, I think I need a PFAS blood test because of so-and-so exposure or my community is at risk, how do I get that, Dr. Wilkes? I would have no way to order it. That's, that is the, the truest answer. I, to, to get non-standard labs, it is incredibly difficult. There's layers because you have to set up an account with a lab. You have to find a lab, set up an account with them, set up a way that, you know, that uh, they're going to actually bill a patient. And there's, there's all these technical things that go into it. It makes it really, really difficult to get specialized labs. And I would, if if someone came to me and said, you know, I want to know my PFAS level until the development of this test, I would have no idea how to, um, to, uh, to help them approach that. And I think that's, I mean, that's the magic of this, uh, of this product is that it makes something that has so many barriers to access, so accessible. And I think that that is um, what's uh, pretty incredible about a lot of what um, we've done at Empower um, is that we've we've made things accessible that were very, very difficult to to, uh, get access to. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wilkes, another question came in for you. What about the connection to possibly mental health um, issues and any of these chemical levels have you this is the the difficulty is that you know when you've got things circulating in your bloodstream depositing in your tissue that are are chemicals that we're not entirely sure how they interact with the body so we you know do they have do they affect our dna and cause certain genes to turn on and turn off or do they affect certain enzymes or do they affect organs in specific ways. There's so many ways that a sort of novel foreign chemical that comes into the body can interact with the body, that it's really hard to understand how one chemical, but in this case, we have so many PFAS chemicals, how they can interact. And we honestly don't have the, uh, the amount of data that we need um, largely because I think testing has been limited. There hasn't been enough, uh, uh, an, enough testing and, and follow through to, to better understand that. So I think we're, I think we're sort of at the beginning of that. I think we'll better understand that over time, but right now, um, r- right now, I, I think that, um, just because in scientific literature, we have limited associations doesn't mean those associations aren't there. 
and doesn't mean that they can't be considered. So if somebody, you know, if, if somebody had a high level of PFAS, you know, it may make me think dif- deeper and, and uh, differently about a number of different uh, disease states that are not necessarily clearly associated, but it, it could sort of factor into that into that process and, um, you know, maybe, maybe be helpful in, in better understanding, um, an, an individual's, um, situation. I'll, I'll just piggyback on that real quick that because Dr. Wilkes mentioned that how many chemicals we're dealing with the approach so far to testing the toxicology, um, the toxicological effects of these chemicals has been on a chemical by chemical basis. So those two I mentioned earlier, PFOA and PFOS, um, they've been the most well-studied of the chemicals. And it's only in the last few years that we've started to develop additional toxicology on um, maybe a handful more of PFAS chemicals, but there are thousands in this class. And so understanding whether they all have similar toxicity, what systems in the body they affect. Um, there's a lot of work that remains to be done on that. And, um, you know, administration and EPA are working to see if there's ways to kind of speed up that process, um, look at groupings of chemicals rather than one at a time. Um, but these, these efforts, they, they're not quick. They take time. They take time to understand what, you know, they're seeing and to get it right. I, I think, I think that, um, you know, I think we're in a, in a unique situation right now with the COVID pandemic because CDC has expressed, um, you know, interest in, uh, in the effects of PFAS on immune function and specifically immune function around COVID um, because there's, there's some questions about um, whether PFAS, elevated PFAS levels may uh, lead to increased severity of COVID. Um, and, and there's questions about whether um, uh, vaccine efficacy could be decreased with high PFAS um, for COVID. There, there's been some papers published about uh, vaccine efficacy for other vaccines. Um, but I think COVID is bringing some of this to the forefront because we, we don't know how high levels of PFAS can affect the immune system. Um, but the, the pandemic of COVID has sort of given uh, a, a unique way that's so widespread that, that it is a little bit easier to study, you know, immune function through disease severity and through vaccine efficacy and through vaccine antibody response. And so I think that I think a lot of interesting things will come out over the next couple of years from that. And then hopefully that will sort of be a good springboard for a lot more research, because those questions are unanswered, but very interesting. And there's so many unanswered, but very interesting questions that we just need to sort of get the ball rolling. Right. Is there anything else that uh, panelists want to share or any other questions? We can take another quick look at the chat box. Yeah. Well, everybody's thinking about it. I just wanted to share this, this screen to remind everybody that uh, for individual PFAS exposure blood tests, you can definitely go to empowereddxlab.com and you can look up our PFAS test. I put the PFAS link in the chat as well, the specific one. We do have 22 tests, so you can look through all of those. Um, If you do want to order for your fire department or for a group of people, uh, order in bulk, you can email Aaron 
That's Aaron at EmpowereredDXLab.com. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining the webinar this evening. We hope you gained some extra knowledge and data on PFAS and can share that with others, maybe unions, members of Congress, anything or anyone to advocate for legislative changes. And again, please reach out to us if you have any questions at all. And we appreciate you listening in this evening. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Empowered Podcast, your trusted advisor for all things health and wellness. For more information on how you can take control of your health, visit EmpowerDXLab.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Until then, stay empowered. Stay empowered.